Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. November 14, 2021, episode 203, found but not lost. Greetings one and all, welcome into the Beekeeper's Corner. Taking a few weeks off from producing the show, and as such, I'm recharged, ready to go, and have some cool things on deck to talk about. I think it's going to be a fun little ride. It's a time of year where things are quieted down and our bees are pretty much set for winter. I talk about that fall dynamic in the local hive report, but if you followed me for any part of time, you know that try to have everything ticked and tied by Halloween, and this year we hit the mark. Our weather has turned a bit here on the cold side, but there are some warm days teasing us, comfortable temperatures in the afternoon, and I wish I was not such a slog that I might get out into the garage and do a little more fall cleanup before cold weather makes me retreat to the house. I think I'm going to have to get on the stick there. Nothing worse than working in an unheated garage and having your hands so cold that you cannot feel them. When that happens, it's time to head indoors for a nice hot bowl of soup and dream of spring. So what's in store for the show? Let's get the rundown out of the way. Frame manufacturing. Ever stop to think about how they make them in bulk? That thought crossed my mind and I did some peeking around and I'll talk about what I found. Insulated hives seem to be all the rage and a popular topic this time every year. I think it grows in popularity more and more each year. And what if I told you you could insulate your hives and kill varroa in the process? Somebody's figured that out. I'm going to talk about the thermosolar hive concept and its merits in roundtable number two. Roundtable number three, neonics are impacting white-tailed deer. Beekeepers are going to be paying attention. Roundtable number four, there's a Zach Lamas talk set up for ABF and the title intrigued me. It suggests a connection of drones' presence to worker mite impacts. I read the title and had one of those profound aha moments. I'm going to share an impression of what struck me about it. What if you could turn back time? Imagine a place undisturbed, and the bees might be just as they were over a century ago. Seems there might just be such a place. That's roundtable number five. Moving on from roundtables... One topic for this episode, fondant. Take number three. It's that time of year and I'm going to revisit the fondant recipe I've shared in previous shows. We will, of course, finish off with the local hive report. And in the end, I want to say a few words of goodbye to some friends in beekeeping and close out the show with some odds and ends. Jammed packed and no time to waste with any other banter. Let's dive right in. Roundtable number one, I call this one Fabulous Frames. It's about the process in which frames are manufactured. You know, I never gave much thought to that, how they're cut and assembled. And such a new learning in a space is kind of interesting to go there. As suggested in the intro, I spent some time just to learn that. I'm going to tell you what I came across, and I don't think this is a comprehensive version of this, but it will give you a taste of it. If you think about the physical design of a honeybee frame, they are all perfectly similar. You know, in some manner, they are milled to exact 
tolerance, and I ask you, how might you consider achieving that if you were going to go into the business? To solve the problem, me personally, I realized that you have to have the right blanks for each of the pieces, the stock for the top, the two sides, and the bottom configuration for the design you want. So it has to start with really good wood, and you have to assume that it has to be dried properly, stable, and you have to be able to mill it. Some of the frame designs use simple squared off stock for specific parts that you see in the industry, and others are really intricate. And I would think that industry evolved to figure this out. You could imagine back in the early days, small little wood shops with different tools would cut each one piece by piece, laboriously creating something, and their design was probably simpler. And over time, with the sophistication of machinery and advances in design, they've gotten to the point where we're at the modern idea of it, where they can cut any shape they ever want, CAD designs, things like that. And it's pretty amazing. Now, if you look across what people sell in industry, sometimes you see local shops making frames the old-fashioned way. But, of course, you can go into any catalog for big box supplier, bee supply places, and order frames by the pallet if you want. And they're all perfect. You know, occasionally you get a little clunker in there. But for the most part, it's pretty amazing how good the quality is. So how does that work? Let's start with a more regional or smaller provider, how that they do it. Um, and again, there's different levels to this, but the answer here at this level is a machine that resembles something like a shop grinder. It has customized attachments that cut the special formations on the frame. To describe this device, it's a large, powerful motor with the shaft out the side, and it has some configured cutting chambers built on. It's like a permanent jig with cutting attachments that are predisposed to impart different cuts on the various frame stock that you insert into them. So illustrative, let me see if I can describe this some. To the side of the motor is a metal frame that has a bunch of holes. It's like a big box, and it's all misshapen it's not the square pretty thing but each one of them has their own utility it's a little akin to like a device that sharpens knives if you've ever seen them the thing works when you take a piece of stock for the top and you insert it in the hole for the top and it shaves away the piece to make the certain cuts that form the top bar as we know it Hole number one in the one device I looked at was meant for the bottom of the sidebar and it cuts the grooves for the bottom bar to slot into. And then the operator flips the piece over and inserts it into hole number two and it shaves away the impressions for the top bar to sit down inside. You repeat the process for the second sidebar, bottom and then top, and you set them aside and move on to the next one. In the top bar, the operator sets it down along one side and slices it through. And that creates that channel for the groove of the foundation. Then they take it to another channel and it cuts the ear channel that mates to the sidebar. You know, where the sidebar comes up and slots in. 
This particular piece of equipment I'm describing would be cool for a small manufacturer, but it certainly wouldn't be good enough or efficient enough for the big guys. And they bring out the big gun, right? Because they take the other parts and pieces, the bottom bar, the top bar, the side bar, and they all do each one, one by one, handling them in this small machine over and over and over again. And it does give you a high degree of accuracy. And I'm sure they have to go through and, you know, sharpen the whatever is cutting these parts and pieces on this little thing. And if you were a small guy, meaning a, a sideliner kind of business frame producer, this thing would work really well. It's not like someone's sitting there on a bandsaw cutting each thing on a frame, which, by the way, I've seen. But it's just not efficient enough for the big ones. So they do something different where manufacturers have created specific machines for each part, and the dedicated machine cuts every part of the frame. There's one machine where they take a whole host of blanks and feed them through, and it cuts the grooves that I described. They have dedicated cutters that just cut the notches in the side. And it's industrial-scale machines for each and every piece. And apparently, you know, let's just make up a manufacturer, Manlink. They probably had someone CAD cam the design of their frames, each cut, and then had someone build the machine where they run the stock through in a manufacturing process and it cuts to their specification. And if you turn to someone else, Better Be or one of the other ones, they have the same thing, but maybe their design is different in how much gets cut away of the material for a certain angle of it. And I'm thinking that each machine is custom made for each individual manufacturer, and that's why there's discrepancies or differences in the design. There's no standard one side. This is, you know, there's certainly dimensions, right? So to that end, I will post key videos that I found. The first is a demonstration of a Russian machine. It's the first one that I described. If you watch the video, the language is irrelevant. You can see the progression of use and what I described a few minutes ago. He takes a piece of stock, he sticks it in the hole, he flips it over, and so on. And then I'm also going to post a link to a manufacturer of that device. It's in Russian, but you can just click the translate button on your browser and read through. It's interesting to peruse nonetheless. The second video I have to share is one entitled The Production of Frames for Beehives. This one, too, appears to be an overseas operation, but it has English subtitles describing the various steps of manufacture. Um, that one shows the bigger machines where they make specific cuts. They take 100 blanks, set them down on a tray, and slide them all through. And when it comes out the other end, all 100 are cut in one shot for one particular cut. It's kind of cool to see. For a bonus, I have a video that popped up while browsing all of this of a beehive finger cutting machine. I never considered how they do this, but... They take the entire blank side or front and they slide it into this tray and they slide it through and they roll it up and it cuts all the finger joints out. 
there's a series of cutters that cuts every single joint and that's how they get them consistent uh, be forewarned once you get started you might consider firing up the uh, microwave for popcorn because you'll start watching a bunch of these videos just like I did it's really cool to see how they did it for round table number two I want to talk about the thermo solar hive it's a hive manufactured out of Czech Republic it is a full hive system of which I will describe but the basic premise of this thing is that the hive has the ability to use the power of the Sun to convert energy into heat and it's going to raise the heat inside the chamber of this specialized hive to a point where it's going to kill Varroa mites but not impact the bees and effectively become a treatment of some sort where the hive itself facilitates your mite management program. So the underlying promise of this hive, or premise of this hive, is temperature kills mites. We know that from science. The varroa mite can't tolerate certain temperatures. And if you follow the research, the general range believed to be 104 degrees Fahrenheit to 116 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 40 degrees Celsius, 47 degrees Celsius range. If you could hold varroa mites at that temperature for a period of time, they won't survive. Now the fact is, the bees will survive. Bees are a tropical nature that came out of, obviously, Africa and warm places. So they could tolerate heat better than that. The one challenge you have is, how do you heat a hive? There's a bunch of different ways to go about it. And what some people have done is rigged temperature, you know, like heaters inside the colony and whatever. But part of the problem is the actual physical structure of the hive doesn't hold the heat. And what the thermosolar people tell you is that you have to hold the temperature for around two hours for the treatment to be effective. So let me give you a quick overview of the actual hive. It's an insulated hive with engineered sensors and electronics. The hive design comes with a couple specific and specialized parts. There's a roof like any other hive and underneath the roof the inner cover is replaced by something called the thermo solar cover. This is a specially engineered wooden frame with glass on top that has a coating that helps to convert the sun energy into heat and it has other features and functions including the sensors that I was talking about the front of it has a couple LED readout displays so as the temperature rises in the hive you can tell the temperature inside and so on below the thermo solar cover are specialized hive bodies these hive bodies are made out of thick wooden material and they have, well, if you look at the front, there's like a glass panel, but I'm sure it's more specialized glass. Sitting right behind the glass panel is something that slides in behind it to help diffuse any energy coming through the glass. Imagine if you had glass in the front of a hive facing the sun. Eventually, the heat next to that glass would get so hot as to melt the comb behind it. They have something akin to a follower board that diffuses that energy and allows it to distribute. 
And the other thing about these boxes is that they are lined with some sort of foil, engineered foil, that prevents the heat from escaping. The commentary on the website indicates that heat will escape through even, let's say, you know, a lot of us use polystyrene hives, thinking, you know, that's a good insulator. Heat will escape out of polystyrene, and the foil prevents that from occurring. When you step through the way the colony works, what they tell you to do is the beekeeper will come, take the roof off the hive under full sun, and the heat will translate down through the roof, through the, uh, let me use the proper term, thermosolar cover. And as it does that, it changes the rays of the sun into energy. The website about this says, quote, the surface is coated with a special color which was being tested and refined for a long period of time. Its specifics is an admixture which increases significantly the conversion ratio of varied short-wave light radiation into long-wave thermal radiation, end quote. The secret sauce here is without that admixture that they speak about, you're just not going to get that heat radiation down into the colony. You won't be able to bring it up. And couple that with the concept of all the other features built into the boxes. And I have to say the bottom board, I'm guessing, is insulated too. I didn't see that covered on the website. But um, I'm assuming it has some sort of insulative properties. They say that the hive will reach the temperature... The sensors will go off, the beekeeper puts the lid on the roof, and it will hold that temperature for two to two and a half hours. That's long enough to affect the mites, but not the colony inside. And then eventually, all the heat will dissipate out, and the colony will resume normal operation. One of the key factors in the design of this thing, you have to think about the math that they did. There's a balance in the engineering that you just can't underestimate. The hive heats to the target temperature and holds that for a period that will impact it. And it ov overcomes the natural ability for the bees to cool the interior of the chamber no matter how hard they try. That's kind of cool how they did that. When you look at the actual equipment, there's a bunch of different touches to it. The thermal solar cover underneath is engineered. It has a metal grid with all the holes in it. I'm assuming that has something to do with how the heat dissipates or, or is retained or whatever it may be. Um, the top of the boxes has an indexed ridge so that when you set one box down on the other, like my polystyrene boxes outside, they overlap so the heat can't pass through that gap. There's a bunch of different fit and finish things you notice if you look at the way the solutions are engineered. And one thing to be said, it's heavy duty. Uh, my guess is, and what is typical of European hives, they're thicker substrate. They're not three-quarter inch wood. They're heavier. And with the insulative foil and the panes of glass, I have to assume these boxes are going to be really heavy. My guess is, you're going to set the brood chamber up on a bottom board. You're not going to be futzing around with that. It's going to be something that's going to be stationary. You're not going to be moving these. So let's put it in the boutique hive category.
given this hive is set up in Europe, they have to accommodate all the people's wishes and whims in Europe. So from that standpoint, they have a bunch of different form factors. There's detent dimensions, national dimensions. There's even some in Norwegian and Dutch dimensions, which I don't know what that means. I'm kind of curious. And for the Langstroth lovers, they have a Langstroth form factor too. Ideally, what we're talking about is the dimension of the box will hold the specific frame type that you want, both width and depth. In most of the promotional photos, they show a three-deep equivalent, and it appears to be the common way you run this hive. And you can, of course, given their conventional form factors, put honey supers on, but keep in mind you'll have to remove the honey supers when you're doing your treatments. It's unique, it's boutique, it's not mainstream, yet it's intriguing as can be. And if I can go down the total cost of ownership, they're not cheap. They're really expensive. From what I could tell, a Langstroth box with two deeps and two mediums is $900 prior to shipping from Europe. So, ouch, but okay. Let's just assume, and I have to believe this is true, the engineering and intellectual capital warrants it for these patented hives. And yeah, it's high. But does it pay you back? Is something that's easily three times the cost of conventional setup for the initial outlay going to pay you back over its lifetime of use? Well, if you could prevent colonies from dying from varroa mites and not have to pay to replace them, whether you're doing splits or buying packages or whatever that may be, that's kind of easy math. Consider your time that you don't have to use to do conventional treatments, pulling hives apart, putting treatments in, and also the cost of the treatments. And also the un intangible amount of um, you're not putting chemicals in your hives. It's all natural. So is it worth the high payout? There's some suggestion that you could swap colonies in and out of this box and use it like a heat chamber. So you could get even more utility out of it. So you set one to the side, you operate your colonies in your normal boxes, but every once in a while you package ship the 20 frames and stick them in your Langstroth box over here, do a heat treatment, and then put them back and keep rotating them out. I think that's a little more fussy than I'd ever want to get to, but you could get more utility out of the equipment that way. One thing to consider is where you are. Uh, we all live in different places and beekeeping is local. I think in New Jersey there's certainly enough solar energy throughout the beginning of spring to the end of fall to be able to operate this colony. But you know, if you think about the traditional places like Seattle, Washington, who have all those misty overcast days for a long period of time, maybe this isn't going to work. Makes me also wonder to the other extreme, down there in Texas, where they're having 110 degree days, string after string after string. And this brings me to a Kevin moment. I wonder if Texas beekeepers could just close their hives off, put some sensors in them, let them get to that particular temperature, and just do it without this equipment. I know that uh, what they say on this website is, Let's take a polystyrene hive. It's known to have insulated properties. 
What they're saying is you might be able to get a hive two temperature, but even with polystyrene substrate, you're not going to be able to hold that temperature for two hours. How about when it's a hundred and something degrees in Texas outside? Then I bet you could do it. It makes me also wonder if we get in those stretches for New Jersey where we have those hot days on, on end, sometimes we get unusually 100 plus degree days, what would happen inside a polystyrene hive if I had my brood binders in there and could check the temperatures? I know the bees could try to over, uh, you know, to compensate for that, but if I thwarted them a little bit, closed them off, would I be able to get an equivalent mite treatment? By serendipity? That's an interesting thought. I'll have to pay attention to that next summer. So there's other boutique-style setups out there. Zachary Wong from Michigan comes to mind, the mite zapper, where you put the frame in and you zap the, the bees through a similar but different use. Um, I like the creativity that people are coming up with. And... I think this dovetails nicely with the trend to start insulating hives, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Now, one thing I have to ask, and it's just me thinking out loud about this thing. They say on their website, there's no impact to the bees. Can that be true? Because I just saw something recently that talked about the hot and cold cycles that a colony could go through that could impact brood development, queen development. And my question is, long-term use implications to a colony. Now, when do varroa mites cause issues for bees? Typically, you'd want to do your treatments in July and August, if I follow in the traditional sense, when it is the hottest part of the year during the summer, and the bees are managing heat and cold. What would happen in early February if you heated a colony up to that temperature when they're not expecting that for two hours. Uh, there's a bunch of different things that make me go off the reservation and think, that's interesting. What would the impact of that be? How could it not be impactful to bees? But yet the allure of you simply take the roof off, wait for the sensor to beep, put the roof back on, and two hours later everything goes back to normal and there's nothing else to do. Well, hmm, boy, that sounds really compelling. So in the end, I don't know if this thing is ever going to become the way of the future. One of the challenges, of course, whenever anything is expensive, is that it doesn't have mainstream adaptability. The contrary thing to that is the flow hive, <laughs> which denies uh, explanation, but there is that. Uh, it would be cool to see this thing in widespread use and see if it actually works. And I have to wonder what a treatment-free person would think of this contraption. Does this uh, buck evolution? Because bees were raised in tropical climates in Africa and, you know, the hottest parts of the world. Anyway, I'm now pontificating on what does this thing mean, and I don't actually know the answer to that. I do think, though, that it's a cool idea. And I love to see the testimonials of people saying it works. And I have to wonder somewhere in my future if I might think about a poor man's version rig of this. But uh, for now, it'll just be a dream 
And who knows, if they start to sell one of these in the United States somewhere where I don't have to pay double the cost of it to ship it over here, that would be interesting, wouldn't it, to try out. I'm always up for an experimentation. So the Thermo Solar Hive, of course I'll have links in the show notes where you can click over and go browse and peruse their wares. And if anybody happens to have one of these, I'd love to talk to you about it. Just write me in, kevin at bkcorner.org, and I'd like to hear what your uh, real-world experiences are. Roundtable number three, neonics and white-tailed deer. This is just to say another bell has run for neonic evaluation in America. This time it's with white-tailed deer. Earlier this year, it was shared that researchers from Minnesota made a request of hunters taking deer during hunting season to harvest the spleens of the animals and turn them in for further study. There's some speculation that that request is coming back to the concerns that sampled animals are showing traces of neonicotinoids from a particular thread that I came across where its origins were from a 2017 report where white-tailed deer exhibiting birth defects in Montana. At issue is endocrine-disrupting neonics, which are impacting wildlife and exhibiting malformations. Deer, in particular, are being noted to have different jawbone lengths, body weight, organ weights, among other things, and they're attributing it back to neonicotinoid exposure. Given this is a beekeeping podcast, I feel like it's important to understand what goes on in the neonic play because of our beekeeper passion for following what neonics does to bees. And I think it's pretty well documented that a lot of people in the beekeeping community think neonics play a role in the health of honeybees and the exposure to it in the pastures of America. Uh, that makes this an interesting topic for us. When it comes to neonics, it's clear that honeybees and neonicotinoids don't mix physically and philosophically. And the industry has suggested that controls on how neonics work in the environment, they prevent exposure and that it is in equilibrium with what goes on. Uh, beekeepers, some in particular, take issue with that notion, and they just feel like this chemical does not, chemical set does not involve in the natural environment. Uh, a lot of people feel that same way about Roundup, too. My thoughts take me down a different path. These things have been out there for a long time, and yeah, I believe our bees are exposed to it. If I look at the field next door when the beekeeper, when the beekeeper, sorry, when the farmer ran through with his seed drill and drove those seeds down underground, the bees could not get to it. However, as he's running his tractor through the field, there's old corn stalks from last year. And as the wheels poke those corn stalks, they dig down into the dirt. And every once in a while, you would see a red seed up on the surface. That leads credence to the fact that sometimes neonics are not buried in the ground. However, my bees were sitting right next door to that field, and year after year, I don't know, I didn't see massive die-offs. Do I believe bees are impacted by neonic plants and the liquids they exude and all that stuff? Yes, I really do think that is true. But the bottom line is, 
where the problems are for our honeybees comes back to what the chemical company said when CCD occurred, and it has to do with varroa mites. If you followed all the news back then, they said to the industry for beekeeping, I know you're looking at neonics, but you really should focus on varroa mites. That's the silent killer. Turns out, funny thing, they're probably right in that assessment. But if I think back to the way this works, and coming back to the white-tailed deer, white-tailed deer have neonics, and it's causing issues. So the pressure of what's going on in nature becomes a problem. Sublethal exposure to neonics for the bees and now to the deer and who knows what other things are impacted potentially are going to, again, sound the bell for evaluation of this. And what's interesting, going back to the Minnesota request, quote, Minnesota Department of Health believes there is likely little to no human health risk for consuming venison from deer that may have been exposed to neonics. So they're asking for the spleen to see if neonics are in there. And, and by the way, that was an end quote. <laughs> but they're telling you along the way, by the way, you don't have to worry about the neonics in the deer. It's not going to hurt you. But further down in the clause, it goes to say that the residues were far below the USP, US EPA allowable levels of neonics for consumption of foods and that neonic levels are higher if I read this right than what's in fruit and beef and other residues that you get when you're consuming products in the marketplace. So what of our sublethal effects? <laughs> what about the sublethal effects of human who are enjoying a steak on Sunday night eating the vegetables on the side and having deer jerky over there next week? That's just a Kevin moment there. But it sounds like the math doesn't count when you talk about sublethal exposure. That's a little bit cheeky of a way to say maybe I'll pass on the deer jerky. <laughs> I'll have a link to the study that expresses the impacts of neonics to deer and the advert where they're asking for hunters to share spleens. I guess... Like all things neonics, you just have to keep listening, paying attention to what's going on. And again, my hope is that the industry is trying to figure out better ways to take care of nature while they're taking care of whatever plant products and stuff we have in our food chain. Uh, you know, I have to add an unrelated thing to pass along since white-tailed deer are the topic. I heard news this week that deer are subject to COVID and that it's possible that they're going to harbor COVID like a vessel. And as such, it's possible that coronavirus is going to stay around in our landscape through the deer for a long period of time. There was a study, and this is what it said, there is no evidence that humans can get coronavirus from deer, but a study in Iowa reports 80% of the deer there may carry the disease. Now, I don't know if coronavirus make deer sick. I think I've heard that's true. But they have coronavirus and neonics. Isn't that an interesting sidebar? I'll have a link to that story too in the show notes. And this is as editorial as I get with this kind of thing. 
it's just me saying out loud to you as a beekeeper. It's always interesting to pay attention to what's going on with the things that matter to us. And neonics, I guess they really do matter. We just have to keep an eye on this. And uh, this one passed across my plate, and I thought I'd share it out. Round table number four, this one's called Munching on Workers. It has to do with drones passing on varroa mites to workers. If you're like me, you see different things in your inbox and on Facebook and such related to beekeeping events and symposiums. And when I do, every once in a while, I like to go see what's on the card, what people are talking about. I was browsing through presentations of the American Beekeepers Federation Conference that's going to happen coming up here in January in Las Vegas. One of the titles in the stack immediately resonated with me. Might Bites on Workers explodes after drone production ceases, Zachary Lamas. Now, I've been following Maryland's Zachary Lamas for a while, and one of the reasons is he's a pretty dynamic guy. My sense is that he is up to his elbows, up to his neck in bees every day, and this is my kind of researcher. What I mean by that is he seems to demonstrate two qualities that make an interesting mix, curiosity and agility. Curiosity in the fact that, like an everyday normal beekeeper, he's intimate in what's going on with the bees. He wants to know why and solve problems. The mix of things that go wrong that we experience as we perceive it, and the mix of unsolved challenges that deserve some merit are recognized by somebody who's in the same zone we are. The second part is agility in that he's not afraid to stop and on the spot conjure up something in the moment to learn or problem solve for something that's on that list of things he's curious about. And as a result, the things he talks about more often than not are interesting. Queen breeding topics, disease topics, brood nest dynamics, and well, whatever seems to move him in the moment where he is. What distinguishes him from the rest of us, as far as I can see, is that, well, he's one, a bona fide researcher, and two, he puts together studies or assays that he does in a structured or mostly structured way, more on that in a second, and he dives right in. Uh, Kevin, moment, hold on. There's two things in that statement I want to elaborate on. First way is, word is assay. I always hated that word. It took me a long time to come to terms with it. Maybe you know this dynamic. Someone's talking, and they're on a roll, and they say a word, and your brain locks up. Mid-sentence. After the word repeats and repeats in your head, assay, assay. Asset. All the while, the speaker is going on for the next few moments, and all you're hearing is blah, 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 blah. Assay, that was the word for me for a while. If this happens to you, hopefully I'm going to help you out of that in the future. An assay is, quote, an investigative analytic procedure in laboratory medicine, mining, pharmacology, environmental biology, and molecular biology for qualitatively assessing or quantitatively measuring the presence, amount, or functional activity of a target entity, end quote. 
for qualitatively assessing or quantitatively measuring the presence amount or functional activity. You know, it's subtly different from the word analysis, which has a basis in deconstructing something for the purpose of study. So for what I learned, there's an aspect of the word assay that has its genesis in the area of precious metals. If you're trying to ascertain the proportion of a specific metal in an ore, if it's gold or silver, for example, you are attempting to make an assay. I believe that's the genesis of the word. You're trying to ascertain its presence. Now, I said there were two thoughts. The second thought to elaborate on is I might say he does some things in a slightly structured way. I actually mean that as a compliment. And what I've seen of Zach's work is that he'll sometimes set up a bunch of small tests to check his systems before committing to a full-on research procedure. Along the way, he's learning things, and he's cautious, but he's transparent and tells you what these little tests yield. To me, that's a very agile way of working, and it's not too dissimilar on how I often practice solution architecture at work in our cloud space for IT, for information technology. Test, fail, or succeed, adjust as necessary, lock in, and then move on to the next part of the puzzle. As such, I kind of think that Zach is a man when it comes to these things he tinkers with, and I would encourage everybody to pay attention to what he's doing and saying. Because a lot of times, researchers will lock themselves into something, and they won't tell you anything. They do the chitty-chitty-bang-bang approach. They're locked in a room, and until the doors open, you have no idea what's going on back there. I like the fact that every once in a while, Zach gives you a look behind the curtain. There's really only a handful of researchers that I see doing things like this. And for me, one of the other poster childs of this, you know, be, beyond Randy Oliver, who I think a lot of us know, is someone like Zachary Wong. You know, in his days, man, he was prolific and still is doing things out there. So end of Kevin moment on those two things. All of that is to say, and coming back to the title talk of Zach, there are times you come to understand something and after that point, you have a different outlook on things. The title, it speaks for itself. It's like, oh, so transparent. The biology-driven beekeeping that you know might coast you through some early spring darn well. There are populations of raw mites in your hive in the early spring, but you don't see any measurable difference or visual productivity changes in the colony. And then it happens. And if you look, you'll see this. A good colony suddenly changes. If you watch, and I mean truly watch, the day-to-day, week-to-week performance and behavior of your colony, you can see this change. It goes from a humming, thrumming industry to some state where the machinery seems out of calibration. You're not quite sure what it's about, but even from the outside, you can tell. It's a sense, and when I notice it, I always immediately think that hive's impacted by Varroa. You become zen with it. And I hearken this back, Kevin, moment to times when I've heard commercial guys say that somebody like a Tim Schuler, somebody who's in bees every day, will walk by a colony and go, that hive is sick. 
they know it intuitively. And you look at them like, what are you, you know, a Zen master? How do you, you know, it's this, it's this thing right here that I'm talking about. End of Kevin moment. Now, I've always equated the problem of Varroa mites, the population overload of the Varroa mites inside the colony due to that reproductive nature of Varroa mites. Now, this is a little bit of a different dynamic to have to throw into the equation. And if you work through it, it makes sense. Research tells us that Varroa mites have a preference to take up with drones in development. And I'll say loosely that the takeaway for this is, for a period of time, some of the potential negative energy of what the Varroa does to the colony is just distributed over to the drone population in early spring. If you fast forward to where the colony is no longer producing drones and the drone population is waning, the negative energy from the growing population of Roa has to go somewhere. Where does it work? It moves to the workers. The takeaway is a one-two punch. Not only is the growing population of mites intermingling with the worker population and taking its toll during peak population, but the poor workers also have to contend with the pressures of that negative energy from the drone varroa mites coming over. Maybe this is obvious to everybody else, but for me it was kind of like, hmm, that's an interesting epiphany. For us, it's a perfect storm and not in a good way. Taking place in a time where forage tends to taper off in the spring and nutrition always helps the bees, but it's becoming less. And we have to consider that our workers are the lifeblood of the colony engine. They physically produce the food from their bodies to feed the young and sick. Population of worker bees is going to spell the decline and demise of the colony, right? Our worker bees are feeding the young and when they're sick, bad things are going to happen. Such a simple construct. To grasp the mites that interact with the drones will transfer to the workers is, and you know we can use as beekeepers that population dynamic thing in our colony when we see drones tapering off we know that soon enough the promissory note is the workers will be impacted if you want to recognize this milestone when drones taper down as a key dynamic in our colony management it's such an important understanding. And I think I will, from this point forward, be obligated to point out when I'm speaking to the dynamic of Varroa mites as it relates to colony growth, that population growth, peak population, population decline model, this has a place in it. Now I've done the math, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to go to ABF this year. Just, uh, can't swing it, but I am thinking of renewing my subscription with N. And, and when you become a member, you get access to their previous recordings. And someday the recordings from this year's ABF will be posted up on their site. I promise you it's not the same thing as attending the conference in person. Not at any stretch, but at minimum you can get a glimpse of what was presented. And in my books, that's a good investment for your money. So last thing on this is just... This is one of those blurted out loud, and I hope I don't offend Zach Lamas by what I said. Um, I, I am sharing what I thought of my impression from reading the title. 
I have no idea what actually the talk is about, and I'm sure it's going to be amazing, and you should go see it or listen to it or pay attention to him, and I'm guessing that the talk will be even more enlightening. Um, but, wow, that was, that's, that title in itself just speaks volumes. Kudos, man, kudos. Roundtable number five, call this one found, but not lost. News appeared recently of a scenario that a beekeeper has to adore. Right in the heart of the United Kingdom, naturalists have found what appears to be an unmolested strain of Britain's native honeybees. They were unknown to the world until now. If you were to take a country drive north of the famous Stonehenge monuments, say for an hour and a half, you would find yourself in Blenheim, England, home of the Blenheim Palace, Designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, it sits north and west a bit of center city London. The palace property occupies around seven acres, and it looks nice in the photographs, but the surrounding 400-acre estate is what proves interesting to us. In that 400-acre tract, a bee conservationist by the name of Felipe Salbani has documented up to 50 colonies of the rare honeybees living in a place undisturbed, and yet having been found to survive without varroa mite treatments or management by humans. What's cool about this tract, no planting or gardening by humans is permitted in the space. Property is described as containing one of Europe's largest ancient oak forests in a tract of land that has pretty much remained undisturbed by development for 300 plus years. There are no managed beehives on that property, and it's structured in a way to have physical valleys and barriers that may play a factor in the isolation of those bees in that tract of land. Hmm. Kevin Mullen. That's an interesting little sidebar in itself. Think about your surroundings and ask yourself, in your community, in your town, in your county, your neighborhood, is there a single tract of property that you visit today? that would look exactly the way it did 300 years ago. Heck, I would argue that in my span of lifetime, I'd be hard-pressed to think of my local area and point at any tracks of property that are likely unmolested. It's an interesting thing to ponder, isn't it? And it makes me wonder if there are such places, and to the point of the takeaway here, in the United States, and I bet there are feral bees in those places, and we could do the same thing here in specific places. End of Kevin moment. Felipe, it is suggested, was asked at some point early on if he thought the possibility of wild bees existed in that forest, and then he was given permission to explore the space. I kind of hearken it to Tom Seeley in his expanse at the Arnott Forest over by Cornell. Similar but different in another place and time. Over his study, Felipe has come to observe dozens of colonies and documented copious notes on observations on the findings. And what's cool is that stuff's all shared out on the web pages related to this uh, disclosure. So sharing some of the more salient points, because there were a bunch. They didn't do finished DNA testing but they're hoping to prove out the lineage of the heritage of these bees. They've already done study on the wing design and some other factors, 
And it is pointing to the notion that they are ancient stock. One of the nests has been dated back as old as two centuries. They are building nests in the cavities that are approximately a quarter of the size of a customary English hive. It's not dissimilar from what Seeley tells us. There's a thing in Europe, Ecoflor, where people are putting debris in the bottom of their hives in hopes of raising different things in that debris that should complement the bees. By his finding, the Ecoflor concept's not present in the examined colonies in the cavities that they found. Specifically, the tree bee cavities would have had detritus on the bottom if the Ecoflor thing was going on to host the beneficial organisms. Their findings indicate that there's no sign of debris and that the bees actually keep things really tidy. Now they did find, because of the wet nature of the cambium inside the tree, my words, some fungus and other things living in there, but no accumulation of debris or discarded matter like sawdust, leaf remnants, or whatever you can envision might fall into the bottom of a hive during its operation. This is an interesting one. The property is, of course, surrounded by real dwellings on the fringes, right, all around the entire 400-acre tract. What they've noticed when studying the bees inside the tract is the farther away you get from the borders, the darker the bees are. I'll paraphrase and say that maybe some of the bees maintained by modern-day people on the fringes are interloping into the forest, but the ones deep inside the forest seem to be as pure as can be. Also, the comb built into the trees on the fringes of the property is different from the ancient bees building in the center. The speculation is that we beekeepers host comb on frames, and therefore it's straighter in nature. Some sort of learned behavior, my words. And Felipe is suggesting maybe that it would be more successful from the feral bees who do not build comb in the same way. And it, in his observation of looking at this, he's indicated that it's taken a few years for some of the bees in the middle to regress back to the haphazard comb formats and not the straight stuff that they're finding on the outer periphery. I really paraphrased the crap out of that, so sorry if that took liberties, but... That was just kind of one of the takeaways on that, and I find that fascinating as can be. Makes me think about the length of a Langstroth hive compared to how they build things in different sheets in the Lane's hive, but that's going off on a sidebar. So, you know, I can't help but draw the similarities to what we learned from the work at Cornell, and it's cool to know of another place on this planet to learn from. If you want to read the article, visit the website for some links. I'll have two, and kudos to the Guardian newspaper for reporting the story. I can't help but mentioning that. I think sometimes we need to take pause and support and appreciate our news outlets. Hard times for these venerable outlets like the Guardian, which has been around forever. And You know, what I like about some of these newspapers is it's not about sensational politics, gore, famine, hurricanes, or whatever. 
they tend to carry some things that teach and inform us of things. And I found that the Guardian, don't know much about it other than the articles, is a periodic contributor to these things over time. And I took a moment to honor their request for a donation while producing this story. So support those type of things. I would love for you, if you wanted to do something, is to make a donation to Wikipedia because they're amazing. And I donate every year when they make their requests. So the story, no one knew they existed. Wild heirs of lost British honeybees found at Blenheim. And a note from ONBG, one of the uh, beekeeping organizations there in uh, UK, where Blenheim Wild Bees is discussed, will be provided on the show notes. Roundtable is complete. Let's go to topic number one, one topic for this episode. It's how to make fondant. It's that time of the year where a lot of people are searching for recipes and have one in the vault and it's time to bring it out. You know, the one thing that I've never done is post the information on the webpage. So after this, you will find a link to a fondant how-to in the blog on the BK Corner. So ingredients, equipment, recipe, and some how-to. I'm going to do this kind of in a strange way. First thing I'm going to do is give you a quick and dirty version of the recipe. Simple, straight through. And then what I'm going to do is, in the second half, I'm going to go through some particulars. For those who would like more than just a summary walkthrough, a little bit of a helping hand, tips, tricks, and things to avoid, things to consider. So here we go. In the ingredients, you're going to need four cups of water, a quarter cup of corn syrup, one and a quarter tablespoons of lemon juice, that's the juice of half a lemon, and eight pounds of sugar. For the hardware, these are things you're going to need in order to finish this off. You need a large tall pot, a thermometer, a long wooden spoon or spatula, rimmed baking sheets lined with parchment paper, measuring implements, you know, cups and spoons, and we recommend a KitchenAid mixer affixed with the paddle attachment. More on that in a bit. For those that have a sense of how to do this but want a quick walkthrough, this is the summary process. Add your water to a tall pot over medium heat. As the water is warming up, add your sugar, corn syrup, and lemon juice. Stir it vigorously until it is completely formed into a syrup. Turn the heat to medium-high and bring the liquid mixture to 235 degrees Fahrenheit or up to 245 depending on your preference. Once you reach your target temperature, remove it from the stovetop and allow it to cool to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Once it's cooled, move it to the bowl of your stand mixer affixed with the paddle and beat it until it is smooth and glossy and the color of a soft white light bulb. Pour it out of your mixer bowl into rimmed baking sheets lined with parchment paper. Allow it to cool to room temperature, usually overnight. And then from there you can move it to a storage vessel or start to formulate it to put it on your hives. Now, for the most part, 
that's pretty easy, but I could tell you by practice of doing this that there are some insights that you would love to hear from somebody who's done it before. And I'm actually do a more detailed walkthrough of some of the particulars about that process. And then I'll go back through the recipe with a little more explanation. So quick tips, insights. First thing, pot choice. I'm going to say out loud here that you need to use a tall pot for preparing the fondant. When the syrup is boiling up to the target temperature, it's going to boil violently and it's going to climb in the pot. If you use a shallow pot, it's going to spit, spatter all over your kitchen and may even boil over the sides of your pot. So don't underestimate that you need something like a restaurant pot or a tall pot. When you bring the sugar solution to temperature, you have to anticipate a climbing boil. When the water is cooking off, the mixture goes from this rapid boil that you're used to when you're looking at water boiling to this frenetic boil. Don't be alarmed by this. It's something you should anticipate. There's not something wrong. It's the water cooking off. And at some point after it boils up really crazy, the bubble composition will settle down and it will return to more like a manageable, vigorous, cauldron-like bubbling boil towards the end. Now, of course, you need to use care when the sugar solution's at the violent boil stage that the popping bubbles do not throw scalding liquid on your skin. I mentioned a large wooden spoon. I actually like a spatula, which is just a flat wooden spoon. You know, due to the nature of the boiling liquid that is scalding hot, Make sure you pick one that is really, really long so your hands don't have to go down into the pot while stirring. And wood is commonly preferred for this because it does not take on the temperature like a metal spoon. Avoid caramelization. You have to avoid the sugars from caramelizing. If the sugar caramelizes in any way, the fondant's gonna be tainted, even ruined. Honeybees can get very ill if they were to consume sugar that has been cooked due to the chemical reaction that occurs, called Maillard, when sugar browns. It's especially important to stir the sugar at the beginning of the process. The dry sugar that you're adding tends to clump up and sink to the bottom. And if it's not consistently stirred, it will displace the water and sit on the bottom of the pot and it has the potential to scorch. So while you're stirring, especially in the beginning, make sure you reach deep into the pot and get to the lower part of the sugar solution and never leave it to be static in the bottom of the pot and risk scorching. You continue to stir the mixture throughout the process to ensure that there's nothing static in the bottom of the pot and then mind the temperature used. And what I mean by that is it may take longer, but you risk less chance of scorching the sugars if you heat it on medium or medium high. You should resist the urge to crank up the heat to save time because you make more of a risk of burning the sugars. KitchenAid makes a stand mixer. It's a fine and amazing device. And by my way of thinking, a stand mixer is required. This process really requires a substantial mixer. 
Now some instructions on the web will tell you that you can mix the solution with a hand mixer, but I say it's really impractical to try and do so. Once it reaches the target temperature and you put it to mix, the slurry is quite stiff in the beginning and it only gets thicker and more viscous as it cools during the course of mixing to the point where it becomes fondant. Even the gold standard KitchenAid mixers struggle somewhat when dealing with the viscosity of the mixing until it turns to fondant. While I'm talking about stand mixer required, look after your mixer. Mixing the fondant requires quite a bit of power and even the substantial mixers will strain under the effort. And I do know that there's kind of like baby versions and industrial versions and everything in between of stand mixers. So keep your eye on your machine. Make sure it's not straining too hard. And I especially recommend that you monitor how hot the machine gets. You'll physically touch the body of the machine and it'll be hot to the touch burn your hand. If it starts to overheat from the strain, of course, give it a rest to cool it off. So if you find your mixer is straining, two considerations. First one, mix in intervals. Mix it for 10 minutes, then turn the mixer off to rest. Restart it after 10 minutes and repeat the process until you're done. Your second option could be to split the batch. Mix the first half until it's done, and then mix the second half. While you're mixing the first one, keep the second one in a pot on a warm spot covered so it doesn't seize up. And don't forget about it, of course, because it'll eventually become a rock in there when it dries out. To the consistency of the final product, it's usually a mix of two factors. How high you heated it and how long you mixed it. Most are familiar with commercial fondant appearances. If you ever watch the Food TV channel and all the cake shows, smooth and glossy. Typically, that's achieved in commercial bakeries by substantial mixing and through industrial machines that just go to town on the stuff. We don't have those kind of mixers in our kitchens. And as to mixing the fondant to feed bees, it's really unnecessary to go that far. Ideally, you're looking for a solution to form a dough-like paste, so it's not a slurry anymore, that's going to hold its shape and can be formed into patties. If you mix for a while, the solution will take on a grainy mashed potato-like appearance. You go a little bit further than that, and for bee fondant, that's enough. Now, of course, you can go on for a smoother finish, but most pragmatic beekeepers cease mixing when the fondant comes to that doughy-like consistency. Being a little more technical about fondant consistency and temperature, when making fondant, it's akin to the candy-making process. And candy-making terms are often used in describing the texture of the product and the resultant textures from heating the sugar solution to specific temperatures. The soft, fudgy texture in candy terms is referred to as the soft ball stage. Candy starts to transform from a slurry of loose, thick, viscous material to a dough-like consistency at 235 degrees. 
you will look at a candy thermometer if you're using that and it oftentimes will say softball stage, hardball stage, and so on on them in the markings. When making fondant, sometimes beekeepers want a cake-like texture that's stiff but still pliable so it can be broken up. And at 245 degrees Fahrenheit, the sugar will form a stiff but firm mixture that will hold together, but it will shear when you snap it into pieces. Above 245 degrees, the sugars start to melt and molecularly bond to each other, and they'll become more like what your familiar glass-like textures, like a hard candy, unbreakable. So pay attention to your mixture when you're heating it up. The preference for the final consistency is up to the beekeeper. Most fondant recipes stick to the 235 to 240 degree Fahrenheit range. And 240 will assure you it's not soupy, but it could be a little too stiff for some that want that Play-Doh-like feel. The risk is, is that sometimes thermometers that you use for home use are not actually that accurate, and you'll bring it to 235 and if it's off a little bit, you won't get fudgy, you'll get soupy. So I like to say, I know we say 235 to 245. 238, 240 is better. Given its user preference, experiment with different batches until you get the desired consistency and then try to use the same thermometer all the time. So with those tidbits, and I'm sorry for anybody that uses Celsius, I haven't said that yet, but I will now. Let me go back through it again, this time in a little bit more detail. Same exact ingredients, same exact hardware, just a little more illustrative on the process. Okay, here we go. Prep a tall pot with water over medium heat. Allow the water to come to some warmth enough that it's going to dissolve the sugar when it's added in the next step and make sure you affix a thermometer to, to the side of the pot in order to measure the temperature of the solution. Add in the sugar and the corn syrup as well as the lemon juice and stir it into the mixture until the sugar is no longer visible and the solution is a thick slurry making sure that you're digging deep in and that you find no clumps of unmixed sugar as you go. At this stage, over medium heat, you could turn it up to medium high or leave it at medium, but not to high because again, you don't want to scorch the solution. Constantly watch this, the liquid and stirring to keep the solution from browning in any way. Monitor it until it comes to the desired temperature for the texture you wish to achieve in the final product. 235 degrees Fahrenheit, 112 degrees Celsius for softball stage, to 245 degrees Fahrenheit, 118 degrees Celsius for a more cake-like, stiffer end result. Once the slurry is up, to just below a few degrees under the target temperature, turn off the burner. The reason for this instruction is residual heat will allow it to come to full temperature. It continues to rise even when you turn it off. 
And once you get it to the temperature you want, you could pull it off the burner. After achieving the target temperature, allow the mixture to cool down to 180 degrees Fahrenheit, 82 degrees Celsius in preparation for moving it to your stand mixer. Once it's to temperature, pour the mixture into the bowl of your stand mixer affixed with the paddle attachment. In this step, use supreme care as the solution is extremely hot and it will, I promise you, scald your skin. In fact, it's highly recommended that you wear kitchen mitts or some kind of protective wrist-length glove to prevent spatters from burning your hands and wrists because it's almost impossible trying to pour it in the bowl and not to have some sort of problem. Turn the mixer to its lowest setting and once it's in motion you can up the speed to a point where you're comfortable that it's not going to splatter all over from the mixing bowl. Depending on the size and capability of your mixer, you can allow it to go straight through until the desired consistency is achieved, or you can run it in timed intervals, 10 minutes on, 10 minutes rest, 10 minutes on, 10 minutes rest, and so on. Again, the reminder, do pay attention to the strain on the mixer and how hot it gets, and don't let it get overloaded. When the solution turns to a soft white milky color, it's going to turn from a pale sugary solution look to milky white color of a light bulb. And it's at the desired consistency you want. Remove the mixing bowl from the stand mixer and using your wooden spoon or spatula, pour it out on lined prepared baking sheets. Again, and at this stage, I have to tell you, the mixture is still scalding hot. Don't attempt to handle it with your bare hands, and by no means consider breaking off a piece to eat it. It'll be just like taking in that super scalding hot piece of pizza that burns the roof of your mouth. I promise you, it's still that hot. Now, the mixture will be cooled to the touch, in a matter of hours, but most people leave it for overnight, and then once it's finished, you can move it to a sealed vessel for storage, and you can make the desired patties or place them on your hives or do whatever you're going to do with them. Now sometimes, and this is an optional step, people will take the solution once it reaches the temperature cooked on the stove and put it into a sink in a water bath to help cool it down faster. I personally just shut it off and slide it over and I have one of those alarm probes that you put in once it reaches a certain temperature it'll beep. So optionally you could possibly get one of those. But it takes a long time for it to cool to that 180 degrees set and 180 is a general guide. So you just walk in every once in a while, every half hour or so, and stick a probe in it and find out what it is. So making fondant, that's how you do it. This recipe originated from DC Honeybees. I've made it two or three times. I know other people that have made it more than a dozen times in instances. And for the most part, everybody does really, really well with this recipe. Now, you might wonder, 
do you really need the lemon juice? Do you really need the corn syrup? They're actually important to the recipe. The corn syrup and the lemon juice do something to break the sugars down and help it become Play-Doh-like. If you skip those two things, your sugar solution will be much, much stiffer. So prepare ahead and make sure you don't cut those ingredients. Don't be tempted to do that. Now, me personally, I've had good and okay results with this recipe. One time it came out a little soft, but was fudgy and Play-Doh. And the next time I tried to raise the temperature to 245, and it was stiff and brick-like, and I really wanted it to be fudge. So I think if I were to make it again, I would stick in the 238, 239, 240 range. Again, I've seen other people's results from using this recipe, and it comes out perfectly fine. Most of them are 235 to 240. So hopefully this works out for you. And again, one of the first things um, I thought about while coming back to this recipe for this show is that it was never written out. Most of what I've just said to you, I will transcribe and put into a blog post at BK Corner so the recipe will be there forever. If you have any questions, problems, thoughts about this recipe, Kevin at BKCorner.org. And if you use it, I hope it works well for you. Uh, one thing I didn't say is how much it makes. If you took a standard 8.5 by 11, I think that's how big they are, sheet pan, typical cookie pan, what I found is it makes two sheet pans and then a little bit more. That's how much uh, it produces in the final target. And that's with a patty that's about three quarters to an inch thick. So hopefully that gives you a sense of how much it makes. Really the deal is the recipe is scaled so that it fits in a KitchenAid mixer. So it's not about how much volume it makes. It's about what fits in a pot and doesn't boil over and then what goes in a KitchenAid mixer to make a batch. And typically if you want more, you just make more batches. So how to make fondant. Good time of year to figure that out. And if you're game for it, give it a try. I'm pretty sure you're going to have success with this recipe. Seems like a good time to step into this episode's Local Hive Report. The Local Hive Report will be light this go-around. I guess that's to be expected this time of year. As the episode coincides with the formal closeout of the activity of the beekeeping season here in the Northeast. Over the past few weeks, I took care of my punch list put the colonies right for winter. I will add that I went into the hives that I had not gotten to and added some formic pro treatments. In looking back at the 2021 beekeeping season, there was one bright side to the pandemic. Being home has afforded me one of the most hands-on seasons I've ever had. Given the absence of going places and for the most year the posture of working from home, those extra hours not commuting and being able to wander out some lunch times and perform some odds and ends meant that unlike previous years where I lamented about my lack of time, this year was a blessing by comparison. Now, given we started back to trips in the office in September, I'm going to be required to go part-time nowadays. I've had a little less flexibility as of late. 
For example, one thing I wanted to be better at always seems to fall off the accomplished list, and that is monitoring the bees for Varroa, especially late in the fall. So yes, I'll say it out loud, I didn't get to my monitoring. Like previous years, it was placed on the schedule, but life gets in the way. And when things are overtaken by events, you have to make a decision. In my case, what limited monitoring I did, plus my interactions with other beekeepers informed me, that to no surprise people were seeing numbers in the fall that warranted treating. This was especially true anecdotally to those that used Apivar over the summer. And that's a topic unto itself at some point, but that's what led me down the path I took. Better safe than sorry, I took the pass of proactively treating. You know, the funny thing is I saw three accounts of monitoring results that I pay attention to from prominent beekeepers in our area. And while I'm aware that your mileage may vary from apiary to apiary, where established beekeepers report their findings, I think it's a mixed bag. Some said low mites. Others reported that levels require treating. So how's that for murky? Really can't use that as an input. Another oddity that I picked up on is I saw counts. Reports from beekeepers who said, you know, our mite counts were low this year. Following that up with, I'm done with all my treatments for my colonies. <laughs> my takeaway from these encounters are beekeepers may hear do not treat unless monitoring is warranting it but so many people are treating three times a year now it seems they're simply just putting treatments on doesn't appear to be a new phenomena either i've been quiet about this until now but i've been observing and sharing this observation with bob Kloss over the past three seasons asking him what his experience is when he interacts with beekeepers you know, I've been doing that ever since it became apparent to me what the trajectory was. And this isn't a rationalization for what I did, just an observation for things I have kind of taken note of. I kind of wonder if people have become dubious of the testing results and therefore are just going with the treatment route or that they just see so many people treating that they've decided they need to treat. They, you know, headspace themselves into it. Now, I flat out failed to monitor, and quite frankly, I don't have the courage to stomach cleaning up dead hives in the spring, so I took the path of least resistance. And for the case of the one hive, it hadn't been monitored or treated all year long because it had the flow hive on it, and I was trying not to disturb it. That's obviously pad number four, the cedar hive. I'll add one more thing into the equation, and this is probably offensive to some again. Whether you could walk in my shoes or not, you are hearing what actually happens here. I purchased a batch of Formic Pro from my brother's colonies, and unbeknownst to me, he did too. Practicality aside, my excess stock was going to expire this year, and when I did the math, I simply decided to leverage my option and not let it go to waste. The pragmatic side of me said, that the stuff is expensive. I recognize that. Um, you know, I guess sometimes I'm in a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do model. 
consider me truthful or a terrible role model, but it is what it is, and I do what I do. And sometimes I'm faced with making a decision on the spot, and I treat it. Forgive me. Moving along. As to management practices, I finished sealing off the eight-frame poly hives, turns out, and I forgot this. They had slots in the bottom, like conventional hive that accepts coreplast sheets. I'm not a fan of screen bottom boards, and I don't use them on my Langstroth hives. Given these hives have screen bottom boards, and what I was trying to do is insert foam inserts into the holes, I went a different tact and went with the coreplast. When I went to insert the coroplast, like most hives, when you stick that stuff in, it doesn't really give a great seal. It's kind of loose, it's floppy around in there, and that's not to my liking. I'd really like to seal it up tight. What I discovered is, if I doubled up on the coroplast, used two sheets instead of one, it took a little work, but I could wedge it in there, and it really fit tight to the bottom board slot. It closed it off. In fact, I wonder if I'll even have a little bit of a challenge in getting that coroplast out of there in the spring. But the good news is, not only did it seal the hive better than I had hoped, it also provided double layer of coroplast, which is going to be even more insulation for cold air transmitting in or out. Now, the polystyrene hives that I have, the beat boxes, a lot of people close them up through the top because they have no top entrance, close the entrance down, but they leave the bottom open for ventilation. I don't know, I still think there's more than adequate enough space for just the entrance itself. Although, I did want to try and see if I could close down my six-frame ones by giving it an upper entrance, never got to that. Um, yeah, anyway, the bottoms are closed, and I think that's a good answer. A moment ago, when I spoke about overtaken by events, um, you know, sometimes you have plans where this is the day you're going to do something, and then an event comes in, and I was contacted by a beekeeper who's moving to Canada, and she was selling her equipment, and she's not permitted to travel any bees or any equipment that had bees in it across the border. So she was working through the tasks of eliminating her equipment, and I was looking at an opportunity to pull in some more polystyrene hives. I think we kind of helped each other out in that way. I purchased a few from her. I got three sets of six-frame polystyrene hives, as well as the frames and the comb, but no bees. She had already sold off her working hives, and this was her extra equipment. I secured three hive setups that have three deep boxes each, a top and a bottom board, and she also had two feeders and some miscellaneous equipment that she had purchased and was looking to get out of her garage. While I had a 2021 objective not to buy any more equipment and swore off putting anything else in my garage, I feel like this was a good move for me and will tie into my long-term plan for our fledgling honey business. I have in the back of my mind that I will look to sell Nucleus Colony someday, and these hives make the perfect vessel for doing splits, queen-rearing, hosting nukes that can be transferred into woodenware for sales. 
I really feel like these hives do a good job at giving your colonies a good start in the spring. So I'll call it utility. And given I was intimate to the origin of these hives, the comb, the situation of this beekeeper, I have no reservations about putting this equipment into service in my yard. To that point, Bob Kloss went with me when I picked up the load, and I passed out to him two built-out stacks for him to house colonies in for the winter. He had two colonies that were just so-so, and in the guise of reducing the colony down to the box that fits their size, he planned to look in and see if his colonies in two deep 10-frame Langstroth equipments currently would be better suited to come into these six-frame polys, given their size and strength going into winter. I was happy to just pass them on, and I kind of hope he pulled the trigger and moved them in as it'll serve as more data for me to understand about how these colonies overwinter in New Jersey in this poly equipment. Now I could use that statement as a segue to my last point about LHR. Overwinter data. One thing that I did not let fall off the punch list for the local hive report was getting my sensors in the colonies. All of the working sensors I have have fresh batteries and they are in my colonies ready for winter. My true friend, Rich, from Broodminder, sent me a replacement for my Wi-Fi hub, and I'm sending the previous form factor back, along with two sensors that need re rehabilitation, and one of my scales is not working well. To the new Wi-Fi hub, it is a marvel. It's not much bigger than a deck of cards, and it was easy-peasy to set up and get into service. Not only am I fortunate that it reads the sensors and sends them to the Wi-Fi that it can pick up from the house, but the Broodminder team has a new app to go with the suite of sensors and its fit and finish is pretty awesome. Honestly, my distractions had kept me from staying current with this stuff and I'm happy to say with the support of my Broodminder folks, I'm on the right path and I'm enjoying reviewing the data that's automatically reporting in my apiary once again. So tip of the cap to the Rootminder team, they are killing it. I'm not paid to say that. I mean, I guess admittedly, I do suppose I get some special consideration here and there, but I'm sharing my experiences because I feel like the state farm commercials, you know the ones if you're in the U.S. Yeah, Kevin Moment. Maybe some of you from other places may not know what I'm talking about, as I have listeners all over the world. So let me take a second to elaborate that so you didn't get left behind. In the U.S., the State Farm Insurance Company has these commercials that feature their spokesperson, Jake, in various situations in his hometown. In the latest round of commercials, the people he interacts with are fawning over him because of the special deals, in air quotes, He's given them as their insurance agent. In one scene, he's standing in a butcher shop, orders his steak, and the butcher is loading the bag with five or six of these massive steaks. Another commercial, the pizza guy shows up and is giving Jake free pizzas because he's been so good to him and giving him great rates for his insurance. In all the cases, Jake is explaining that he's not treating them special 
that State Farm really has low rates. Working with the Broodminder folks is kind of like that. <laughs> I feel like the customer saying to Rich, thanks, because he takes care of what is troubling me. And the truth is, and my best guess is, they do this for everyone. Rich wrote me and said, you know, just reach out to our team. We'll help you get anything you need to get things proper. Maybe I should buy Rich a red shirt and nickname him Jake. <laughs> no, wait, the red shirt guy never comes back from the planet. Perhaps that's not a good idea. <laughs> Kevin moment. So coming back, the physical bee yard work has come to a close. I think I got to go up there and rake a little bit and clean up and so on. But the rest of it is good to go. I do think at some point when it gets really cold, I'm going to move one of the six-frame polys that's sitting off to the side to pad number one. And I'll check every week or so to make sure that the entrances are open and the hives aren't knocked over and all of that. We had some really super gusty winds yesterday. There's one thing that I did not get to this fall, and I wonder if it's too late. The grass I planted in the spring did not take. It grew, but it didn't get enough sun, even though it was a shade mix. By the way, do you happen to know how expensive grass seed is? It's just unbelievable. To combat the problem of dead grass and mud in the base, Sharon brought me a new mix for Deep Woods location, and I had intentions of sowing it in in the fall. I guess, you know, it still is fall. What do I know about planting grass? Not too much, obviously. I think I'm going to have to wait till next year. While there's not much to do out in the bee yard, I have a laundry list of things I want to do in the off-season. Some left-behind projects that can be rekindled. And my garage is a bit of a mess. Not in the bee area, but just the bench and other things. I will say, at least, that I'd stacked up all the bee equipment and got it organized. And I have no drawn comb anywhere in the stacks. In the past, I've had mice in there. They've chewed it up. They've chewed through the equipment. They've wrecked some of my frames. All of my boxes are sitting on end, open air, outside right now. And I don't think the, you know, there's no advantage for the mice to go in them the way I have them set up. My last notion to share is that I make it a habit to leave my bees fat and happy. And there's some good sized colonies in the boxes for what they have. And I'm having to wonder whether some of my six frame ones, which got a late start, have enough food to make it to spring. They seem a little light to me. I don't feel like they're at risk now, but I think by the time spring comes and winter breaks, they might need a little supplemental emergency feeding to get them by. You know, one thing about those colonies is the roof is tight fitting over the frames underneath. And if I were to consider making the fondant that I just told you how to do, which is why the fondant recipe was in this, quite frankly, I would have to employ some sort of a shim. While it's still warm enough in the garage, I think I have to fabricate a few come spring so that if I do decide in the end to pop the lid off, put the shim on there, throw the feet on and close it, there'll be space for it where the roof will close down on it. Local hive report, check. Uh, yeah, things are good. 
So in true Kevin fashion, there were probably a couple more things I could have added in there, but I'm looking at the length of the episode thinking it's time to close it out. There were a couple things I wanted to say here in closing comments. Every once in a while, some news comes that you don't want to hear, but it's just part of life. And I wanted to take a moment to dedicate and recognize the passing of Raritan Valley beekeeper Cynthia Wirtz. I think for as long as we've been keeping bees, Cynthia has been part of the New Jersey community of beekeepers. And she's been supporting the state branch as well as her local club. Uh, she's one of those people that was always there to lend a hand, have a pleasant conversation with, and she's there to help educate, support the local beekeepers. It's always sad to say goodbye to you know, someone that's an acquaintance. And I'm confident that Cynthia's presence will be missed at the local, state, and club meetings. I think I also wanted to note that the news of the passing of Roger Hoopengardner was posted this week after a two-week, six-week, I don't remember, battle with COVID-19. Roger was Professor Emeritus at the MSU Department of Entomology, and he was a world-renowned expert in apiculture. I personally recall seeing Roger's name on so many research articles over the years, and while I've never had the chance to see him speak directly, my impression of the people who knew him is that he was thought of fondly and there was a lot of appreciation to his dedication to work for honeybees. On the same thing, last one, this may seem out of place and goofy as a follow-up to that, but this week our cat peacefully passed away in his insulated sleeping box that we fashioned for him. Why share this? Well, I thought it was a relevant topic as we referred to him as Tiger the Bee Cat. And the funny thing is, is that just about every time I used to work bees in the apiary, he would follow me into the space and stand guard watching whatever I was doing. Looking back at any of the videos we shot in the past working bees out in our yard, I guarantee it, he's there somewhere. He somehow just loved it, and, you know, there were times when I cursed him here and there. There was one occasion where he was rubbing against the tripod for my camcorder, and he knocked it down lens first and broke it. I do think I will miss his presence very much in the spring when I head out to our apiary for the first activities of the spring. I'll simply say he was a great cat and hold back the tears. Sad news out of the way, let me offer up a quick update about the Cottage Law surprise from last episode. There were some comments from the New Jersey Beekeepers Association that they were going to address the situation. I know that they had some executive meeting and discussed the matter, but I have not heard anything as to if there's been any uh, revelations as to what's going to be done about it. Uh, maybe they had something to do with the comments from the Department of Agriculture whose chairman issued a statement saying they were aware of the problems with honey sales due to the new cottage laws and there would be some discussion about that. So maybe there's some light that something's going to happen, not sure. But I've seen a couple commercial beekeepers discussing in the wild how they're going to have to adjust or change their practices. And I know that uh, quite a few people are probably impacted by this, but until we have live meetings again and get to talk face-to-face, -face, I don't really 
have a sense of what the impact of this is. And it has put a damper on us uh, looking at our honey sales for next year. And I guess we'll kind of sort that out over the holidays. Now, if I take a look at the stack of things I wanted to talk about, I'm at the bottom of the pile. I saw there was a notice came out that they're going to have a discussion about winter management Thursday night at the Raritan Valley Beekeepers Association meeting. So I think I probably will take that in. There was a, a meeting to discuss whether we were going to meet in person for the holiday meeting for Northwest. And uh, one, the venue was not available because of COVID. And two, I think the crew has just decided that it'd be better if we didn't facilitate that. So I believe our December meeting is going to be virtual. Things are going to be quiet for the rest of the year. I have tasks to do on my to-do list. So I probably will be a little more sporadic. I want to rebuild the Northwest website finally. And as I said before, come back to some more training stuff. So, uh, you know, I'll check in here and there across the winter, but I probably won't be as steady through until we get to spring. But but that doesn't mean I won't have my head down in the game somewhere. So I'll be back in touch. Uh, hope everybody's doing well. Hang in there. And uh, hopefully your bees did well and they're ready to go into winter. With that, I'll say, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for hanging in there. And we'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner.